Hello, and welcome to the Radical History Podcast. Today's episode, The Tall Puddle Martyrs, Part 1. On March 27, 1834, five men stood on the docks at Portsmouth, England, their hands and legs manacled, preparing to be transferred from their native land to the penal colonies of Australia. The oldest of the men was Thomas Stanfield, a 44-year-old and the father of five children, the eldest of whom, John Stanfield, was also present. James Bryan, the youngest, was just 21 years old. Alongside them stood a 32-year-old Methodist lay preacher by the name of James Lovelace, the final man, and the only one with a criminal record, having previously been convicted for the theft of some iron, was James Hammett. He was also the only one who was not an active Methodist. A sixth man, George Lovelace, the elder brother of James and also a Methodist preacher, was not present, his transportation having been delayed by a few days due to illness. All were agricultural labourers and lived in the southern English county of Dorset. Officially, the crime of the convicted men was that of taking illegal oaths. Unofficially, even the dogs in the street knew the truth. Their real offence had been that of forming a trade union. These six men were about to become the centre of one of the most significant battles in the history of British labour. At the time, they were known as the Dorchester Labourers. Today, they are remembered as the Tallpuddle Martyrs. This is their story. The narrative of the Tallpuddle Martyrs begins, appropriately enough, in the village of Tallpuddle, a few miles east of the town of Dorchester in the county of Dorset. While today Dorset is regarded as peaceful, staid and politically conservative, the same was not true of the area in the early 19th century. A wide swathe of southern England had, in the 1820s and 1830s, been convulsed by class conflict between agricultural workers and landowners over wages and the introduction of threshing machinery, which workers feared would deprive them of their livelihood. In 1830, this culminated in the so-called Swing Riots, which, in Dorset, mainly led to the widespread destruction of threshing machines. According to Herbert Veer Evatt, on whose work I am drawing heavily, local landowners formed an irregular militia of 2,000 infantry and 200 cavalry to combat the rebellious labourers. One local landowner and magistrate by the name of James Frampton, soon to become central to our story, even fortified his home against the threat of Captain Swing. Things quietened down over the next two or three years, but the local elite would continue to remember the events of 1830 and vigorously prosecuted those who had participated in the swing riots once the movement had ended. Before continuing, we should take a moment to address the significance of Methodism, given the fact that five of the six martyrs were Methodists and the fact that two of them were lay preachers in the movement. Methodism was a radical Protestant sect that split from the mainstream Church of England in the late 18th century. Without going into too much detail, Methodism stressed individual salvation, itinerant preaching, active participation in religious life and the pursuit of justice on earth. The new doctrine proved popular both among the emerging industrial capitalist class as well as among skilled workers. In the context of the Industrial Revolution, the movement grew rapidly, expanding from 58,000 members in 1790 to 300,000 by 1830. 
There is a long and convoluted debate as to whether Methodism had the effect of insulating the British lower classes against revolution by directing their energies towards religious matters rather than political ones. I really don't want to get into that here, but in terms of our story, the Methodist emphasis on lay preaching and participation was vital. E.P. Thompson, for example, wrote that, quote, Methodism, with its open chapel doors, did offer to the uprooted and abandoned people of the Industrial Revolution some kind of community to replace the older community patterns which were being displaced. As an unestablished, although undemocratic, church, there was a sense in which working people could make it their own, and the more closely knit the community in which Methodism took root, the mining, fishing or weaving village, the more this was so. Additionally, Methodist lay preaching meant that the dissident church produced men, and sometimes women, who could organise, read, convince, argue, speak and lead. These qualities could easily be transferred from the religious to the secular realm. It is no surprise that it was one of these capable self-educated men, George Lovelace, who quickly emerged as a local leader among the labourers of Dorset. The economic conditions of labourers in Dorset in the early 1830s were fairly bleak. Agricultural workers lived almost entirely on tea and potatoes. Housing conditions were poor, and we know of at least one case of a family of 11 sharing a one-roomed house with a single window. While rents were generally low, so were wages, and rural workers struggled to maintain their families in the face of widespread poverty. The Dorchester area was particularly bad in terms of pay. While the average wage of agricultural workers in most of the country was about 10 shillings a week, labourers around Tullpuddle were living on just 7 shillings and 9 pence a week. Dissatisfied with these conditions, a number of workers under the leadership of George Lovelace decided to push for a pay rise. Lovelace and the labourers then sought a meeting with local landowners, with an Anglican vicar acting as mediator, in which the farmers agreed to increase wages to 10 shillings a week, the going rate in most parts of England. However, the farmers soon had second thoughts, and the new wages were reduced to 9 shillings a week, then to 8 shillings, then to 7. Shocked at this breach of trust, a delegation of labourers, again led by Lovelace, sought arbitration by local magistrates. Representatives of the farmers and labourers met at a court presided over by Squire James Frampton, who we have already met suppressing the swing riots. If the labourers had hoped that the court would take their side, they were severely mistaken. Not only did the magistrates, comprised entirely of wealthy landowners, refuse to recognise the agreement, but actually upheld the right of farmers to pay whatever wages they pleased. Emboldened by this decision, the landowners prepared to reduce wages even further. Negotiation and arbitration having failed, the labourers contacted the Grand National Consolidated Union, GNCU, an organisation of which we will have more to say later, asking for advice regarding the formation of a local trade union. The GNCU sent two delegates to advise the labourers, after which George and James Lovelace formed the Grand Lodge of Talpuddle of the Agricultural Labourers Friendly Society. Soon afterwards, an informant by the name of Edward Legg joined the union. In the subsequent trial, he described 
the initiation ceremony of the new trade union. Quote, I went with the last witness. They told us something about striking, or that they meant to strike, that we might do the same if we liked. There was nothing said about the time when we should strike. There was something said about our masters having notice of it, but I don't remember anything about it. We kissed a book, then we were blinded. When we were on our knees, we repeated something that was said by somebody, but who said it, I don't know. I believe it was like the voice of James Lovelace. I think the words which we repeated were something about being plunged into eternity and about keeping secret what was done by the society. I don't know what book it was that I kissed. When I was unblinded, I saw a book on the table that resembled a testament. They showed me the picture of death, and one of them said, Remember your end. End quote. As bizarre as this ritual sounds, they were common among the trade societies of 19th century England, particularly those who were most vulnerable to repression. Sidney and Beatrice Webb, for example, mentioned that these rituals often involved prayers, hymns, and mystical paraphernalia, such as skeletons, swords, and battle axes. Whatever the peculiarities of the ritual, the ceremony would always close with the taking of an oath of secrecy and loyalty. The ritual would, organisers hoped, militate against infidelity to the cause at a time when trade unions faced severe resistance from both the state and employers. Unfortunately for the Dorchester labourers, this oath would prove their undoing. From the very moment the union was formed, Frampton and other local landowners were preparing to crush it by any means necessary. In previous decades, they could simply have had the men arrested. Before 1825, draconian legislation, known as the Combination Laws, had severely curtailed the ability of workers to form trade unions or engage in industrial action or collective bargaining of any kind. With these laws long since repealed, the aggravated magistrate had to find another pretext on which he could deal with the rebellious labourers. Luckily for him, there was a means of doing so. In January 1834, Frampton wrote to Home Secretary Lord Melbourne, complaining of the existence of combinations of a, quote, dangerous and alarming kind among the agricultural labourers in his area, and seeking legal advice as to how they could crush these incipient unions without going outside the law. Melbourne directed Frampton's attention to an antiquated piece of legislation that forbade the taking of secret oaths. The legislation had originally been introduced in the 1790s to combat organisations that sympathised with the French Revolution, such as the United Irishmen, but by 1834 the law had fallen into abeyance and had not been employed against trade unionists, even though many British unions employed secret oaths. Moreover, secret oaths were also employed by Freemasons in the Orge Order, neither of which were prosecuted in this period. Indeed, the labourers themselves hadn't suspected that this long-forgotten law might be used against them. The Lovelaces had, in fact, openly ordered the skeleton painting used in the initiation ritual from a local painter without any attempt at secrecy or concealment. It was obvious to everyone from the beginning that the Unlawful Oaths Act was simply a pretense to destroy the Union. Lord Melbourne wanted the Dorchester labourers to serve as a warning to others who were considering forming unions and taking strike action, but was canny enough to know that the basis of the prosecution was extremely flimsy. He urged the local magistrates to proceed quickly before the union could spread. 
Frampton and the other magistrates followed his advice. In February 1834, placards appeared in the Talpuddle area, signed by the magistrates and a number of Anglican clergymen, which declared that anyone caught taking or administrating secret oaths would be liable to prosecution and up to seven years' transportation to Australia. A few days later, George Lovelace was preparing to go to work when he encountered the parish constable, who handed him a warrant for his arrest. Lovelace and the five others were then taken to Dorchester, where they were thrown into prison. There, they were stripped and searched, had their heads shaved, and were held until March, when the trial finally began. Unsurprisingly, the trial was a sham from beginning to end. Frampton himself, who had initiated the prosecution, served on the grand jury, as did his son and two of his allies. The foreman of the jury was the Whig MP, J.S. Ponsonby, the brother-in-law of Lord Melbourne and an ardent opponent of trade unions. Unsurprisingly, the grand jury allowed the case to proceed to trial where another jury, composed entirely of wealthy Dorchester farmers, would decide on the guilt or innocence of the six accused men. There was little doubt as to what the result would be. At the conclusion of the trial, the accused men were brought in for the reading of the verdict. When the judge asked whether any of the defendants had anything they would like to say, the always intelligent and outspoken George Lovelace passed him a piece of paper on which he wrote, quote, My Lord, if we have violated any law, it was not done intentionally. We have injured no man's reputation, character, person or property. We were uniting together to preserve ourselves, our wives and our children from utter degradation and starvation. We challenge any man or number of men to prove that we have acted or intended to act different to the above statement. The jury quickly found the men guilty and two days later they were again called before the court where they were sentenced to seven years transportation to Australia. On hearing the sentence, George Lovelace again took to his pen, quickly writing a quote from a popular labour song on a piece of paper. Quote, God is our guide from field, from wave, from plough, from anvil and from loom. We come our country's rights to save and speak the tyrant faction's doom. We raise the watchword liberty. We will, we will, we will be free. God is our guide. No swords we draw. We kindle not war's battle fires. By reason, union, justice, law, we claim the birthright of our sires. We raise the watchword liberty. We will, we will, we will be free. On the next podcast, we will continue the story of the Talpuddle Martyrs as they set off on their long journey into penal servitude and a campaign emerges to challenge the injustice of their conviction. Thanks for listening. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review. You can follow us on Twitter at History Radical or send us an email, radicalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Music by Sans Chateau.